Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Looks like the uh, protests of residents in Brighton Park were well-founded. The uh, NPR Times state-funded media reporting over protests. City officials confirmed Brighton Park tent plan pending final assessments. This is ahead of a what uh, is sure to be a raucous community forum about the base camp that is going to be located in Alderman Julia Ramirez's ward. This is uh, the ward she represents. It's not hers, although in this feudal system that Chicago has, it effectively is. Um, this is uh, was much made about uh, the incidents last week because uh, Alderman Ramirez was uh, allegedly battered in some way, and that sort of uh, subdued the real story here, which is the residents, Latino and Asian residents primarily, protesting this base camp that the city now admits is happening, even as Ramirez is saying, we're having this community meeting. I want to hear from residents. Nothing has been finalized. But of course, as the residents suspected, it had been finalized and they're rolling over these residents. And what else is new in Chicago? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Well, yesterday, I don't understand this. Channel 5 had, had a bite at her. They had an interview with her. And they didn't ask her about the alleged attack. You know, were you brutal? Like, where were you injured? Where was your staff member? And did your staff member have to go to the hospital because we we're getting conflicting reports? Instead, she turned on Mayor Johnson. She said that he left her in the dark about this and she's ready for tonight's meeting. I understand that like tensions were really high and I love my community. I want to make sure that my community knows that. And I think that there's a really big picture at hand. There's a lot more for us to be able to talk about. And so I just want to move forward. Yeah, and and this, what's moving forward is the project. This is just her covering her backside. This is what aldermen have done for from days uh, uh, past to days present. Oh, I was kept in the dark. This is what you, these older humans want to be treated like mushrooms. City Hall wants to treat them like mushrooms. Uh, they can say, well, you know, we're speaking with your representatives and we're going through the planning and listening process and so forth. And the alderman can say, oh, I was uh, blindsided by the fifth floor. Sure you were. Uh, leaked memo. CTU mobilizing its members to push for these 10 cities, of course. Uh, leaked memo sent to the staff at Thomas Kelly College Prep, which is where this community forum is going to be held. Yeah, six shows, shows CTU Vice President uh, Jackson Potter uh, urging union members to attend the town hall meeting on Tuesday. Uh, you know, uh, 
in support of the base camp that's being erected at 38th and California. So, of course, uh, I mean, not surprisingly, nothing, nothing about this is a surprise, but it's important to detail it nonetheless. You have CTU riding point in terms of doing the community organizing to drown out the concerns of the residents who were protesting in the streets last week and will be protesting, I'm sure, at Thomas Kelly College Prep tonight. Okay. Well, um, here's some good news. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, wait, we have a, a Delia Ramirez fan. It's so rare. John, on the south side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, just to say, I, I live in Brighton Park. One of my properties was vandalized, spray-painted. She took care of it. Had the garage painted very nicely. I had a murder behind the garage. I called her. She came and talked to my tenants for 45 minutes to an hour. Console them. I really think she could have been blindsided by this. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I, I really don't want the migrant camp, but I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I, she's, she's done a stand-up job for me so far in her well, short tenure. Well, well, here, John, so I, I got a question for you. I mean, in addition, it was nice that she helped, you know, with the chalk outline and everything, uh, the murder de jour in uh, her ward. But um, how, how could you be blindsided by this? This has been telegraphed for how long? Two months? Six months? Eight months? We've seen this happening before our very eyes. You've had Mayor Johnson announce, I want a two-acre plot in every ward mm -hmm. uh, for planning purposes. So how could she be blindsided? Maybe she was blindsided that 38th in California was the site, but she couldn't, couldn't, could not be blindsided. She cannot reasonably say she was blindsided that this was going to happen in the 12th ward. Well, for the, for the neighborhood spot that they picked, I think she was blindsided. Could they have maybe got a, a spot where there's already a factory that's abandoned there? Hands down, uh, no problem. But this is about two blocks from the property that where the uh, murder took place on 38th and Washington. And like I said, everybody knew that they're coming and they're going to come somewhere. I, I, I just think she was blindsided by this, yeah, but, by where it was going to be and how it was going to happen. John, hold on here. But construction has been going on there for more than a month now. What did you guys think was being built there? Well, everything's behind the fence. Nobody knows what's being built there. Everything's done, like you said, under handling in the city. You guys said this for the last couple yeah. of weeks. It's, it's backdoor mm -hmm. deals. We never know what's going to happen. There, that's been an empty lot for at least ten years. Thanks for the call, John. Appreciate it. Um, okay. Well, she's just Jenny from the block. I mean, she's uh, born and raised in Brighton Park. The good news. The good oh yes. News. What is the good news? Good news is that uh, Oak Park is oh, yeah. trying to ride to the rescue. Uh, a little um, gathering of community activists. What exactly is the job description of community activists? But I, I digress. A uh, gathering of community activists uh, in Oak Park, calling on Oak Park to do more. And um, the great news is that Oak Park wants to do more. They want to do more. The yeah, right. the church, the city council, the residents, everybody wants to do more. And uh, if uh, Jelly Belly drop ships a little bit more cash to them, then they probably will do more. And that's going to put pressure on River Forest. So it's, you know, that Oak Park domino falls and then River Forest falls. And then you can, you know, ramble through uh, western Cook County to eastern DuPage. And we really got something cooking here. So it's exciting. Here's uh, Betty 
El Zamora, she's one of those community activists you've heard so much about. The problem does not start and end in Chicago. It extends elsewhere. We share that responsibility. Uh, they had a march last night and because they want Oak Park to step up. you got to do your part, people. Get on it. There's a bit of a burden at the 15th Police District on the west side. Of course, that's um, not uh, unusual. All the police districts have been turned into... Uh, you know, like sidewalk tent communities, yeah. I would say. Can't even go uh, inside in some of them. And uh, Oak Park uh, is uh, at the ready and they need to be. The far west side 15th District Police Station is just one of many spilling onto the sidewalk with migrants making a temporary home. Relieve some of the burden that's been uh, forced onto the city because, again, it is a state issue. It's not a city problem. Exactly. It is a state issue. You know who made it a state issue? Your Republican governor, Bruce Rauner. And I wonder how many people listening to this show uh, in the primary when there was an opportunity to make a change and hold somebody accountable. I wonder how many voted for Bruce Rauner. Probably not as many who listen to this show, but certainly a lot of Republicans who are happy to pile on now and decry Brandon Johnson and decry sanctuary city and sanctuary state designations and and pillory of Obama, Hillary Obama, now then Biden for the same policies, the lawlessness at the border that's now been shipped to places like Chicago. I'm sure everybody was pile was ready to pile on. And when there was an opportunity to deal with an enemy inside the perimeter, Republicans pass. And that's why there's no Republican Party. Uh, The churches. Oh, yeah. Can't forget about the churches. The Catholics uh, that remain in. Well, most of them in name only, I admit, but that remain in Oak Park River Forest. Here's Father Carl Morello of St. Catherine, St. Lucie, and St. Giles Parish. In front of Oak Park Village Hall, some of the suburb's residents are almost begging to help. Oak Park has space, and we should be welcoming to all these new folks that are coming. St. Catherine, St. Lucie Parish repurposed the church's rectory as a biweekly shower and meal refuge for migrants, but the demand is now breaking their budget. A water bill that would have been maybe a couple hundred dollars went up to $4,000. The church is now asking the village of Oak Park for assistance. I want to emphasize that what we are doing is wonderful, but it is not sustainable. It's money village trustees do seem eager to provide from a federally funded state grant. Sure, exactly. Why not uh, Catholic Church get some of that uh, sweet federal state tax money? Put limits on showers, man. Why not fold in with the state? I mean, it's it's all well and good for a church to open its doors and provide food and a shower for whoever. That doesn't bother me one bit. But that's uh, up to the church to do. Throwing in with the state? That's something that you see in places like Oak Park, where the church has lost its way. Here's uh, Oak Park alder human Brian Straw. They want to help. We need to figure out everything we can do as a community um, to, to at the very least, bridge the gap. Where's that uh, screaming banshee Susan Buchanan when you need her? Screaming in the direction of Jelly Belly or uh, BLM Brandon. Yeah. So, all right, call, call, calling Oak Park, you say, in the city. Well, Oak Park is ready to respond, so just start distributing more of other people's money. And, I, again, we got something cooking in the suburbs, as it was always going to be. It's coming. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, 
The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at signaturebank.bank. That's signaturebank.bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, signaturebank.bank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. David Mamet left the uh, Democrat Party about a decade ago when he uh, wrote the book. Well, he sort of memorialized the leaving with his book, The Secret Knowledge. Spoiler alert, the secret knowledge is no one has the secret knowledge. Proper skepticism of the state. He uh, writes uh, over at Unheard how the Democrats betrayed the Jews. The sick thrill of anti-Semitism has a price. Of course, Mamet uh, grew up on Chicago's South Side. But he writes, New York in my lifetime had always been a Jewish city. The rhythms, the accent, the humor always felt like home to me. Because they were home. The New York Times, the New Yorker were run by Jews. They were both our Rialto and our Bible. New York theater in my lifetime has always been Jewish, or had always been Jewish. The playwrights were Miller, Odette, Alma Rice, Ben Hack, Sidney Kingsley, and so on and so forth, including David Mamet himself. We New York Jews have always voted for Democrats as their policies appeal to the immigrants and the first generation, my parents. A fair shake, a safety net, and unionism were manna to the newly arrived in spite of in both their and my lifetime, quotas and anti-Semitic discrimination. The immigrant Jews did well here and voted for Franklin Roosevelt and were still voting for him. (laughs) Nice line. Jews vote Democratic, electing presidents who refuse to meet with the Israeli prime minister, that would be Obama and Biden, in times of peace, and who gave and give aid to the terrorist state of Iran in exchange for some semi-specified deal. That would be Obama and Biden. American aid to Iran pays for the equipment and ordinance, which is, at the moment, eradicating Jews. Why do, views, why do Jews vote Democrat? Partly from tradition. Conservatives have heard a liberal Jew when asked to defend or explain various absurd or inconsistent Democratic positions shrug and joke, I'm a congenital Democrat. Mamet writes, I understand, for I was one too. But there is no more cozy mystery in the anti-Semitism of the Democratic Party. Representatives are affiliated with the Democrat Socialists and pro-Palestinians calling for the end of the State of Israel, that is, for the death of the Jews. And Democratic representatives repeat and refuse to retract the libel that Israel bombed a hospital 
in spite of absolute proof to the contrary, and will not call out, call out the unutterable atrocities of Hamas. The writing is on the wall in blood. He uh, also provides a little bit of a historical context why some can't bring themselves to, well, bring themselves to act in furtherance of what they know to be true. And we see this on the left in general, and to some extent on the right in certain circumstances, but I mean it's it's almost uh, part of the ethos of the left. Mamet notes, many German Jews served the Kaiser during the First World War and explained to the Nazi thugs that they were good Germans, and they were killed. And many defended themselves in the 30s by admitting among themselves that the Eastern Jews were uncouth, just as today some Western liberal Jews agree with the squad and that the terrorists, though they have gone too far, quote-unquote, may have a point that Israel's, Israel's desire to exist is not consonant with an enlightened humanism. That is, in effect, a plea for exemption, not only from terror, but from conscience, key. For the liberal Jew means the Israelis are making it hard on the rest of us, which is true, for if Israel's innocent anguish is acknowledged, the liberal Jew will have to admit that he has been living a terrible lie. And that's something people apparently would rather risk their lives than admit. Again, this is just one example. We've talked about this before. People cannot bring themselves to admit what they have been party to. Yeah, it's hard to convince yourself that you've been fooled for years. It's more than that. It's for hard to convince decades. yourself that that you're on the side of bad. Yeah. Many good Germans in the 30s, Mamet writes, ignored their brothers and sisters to the east, later died with them. My generation... Uh, born right after the Holocaust, wondered, good God, didn't you see what was happening around you? Are you literally willing to die rather than admit you were mistaken? Mamet, Mamet's words. The answer today to many liberal American Jews is yes. I'm literally willing to die rather than admit I was mistaken. In response, the world's leftist media calls for the chastisement of Israel in the support of Palestine. While those who consider themselves mere liberals moderate their cowardice by calling for a ceasefire, which is to say a pause while Hamas rearms. Yeah. This is where the libel of the hospital bombing <clears throat> is instructive. It is quite literally another example of the West's oldest, most reliable, and most permissible sick entertainment, the call for Jewish extinction. The invitation here is no different from that of the carnival barker. Thrills, chills, and excitement galore. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. They could ignore the comments so long as they weren't uh, attendant to atrocities, but now those days are over. And this is not to believe that there's going to be any sort of political turning away from the Democrat Socialist Party. I, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen because of, in part of exactly what Mammon writes about, exactly what we know to be true. But I mean, it just uh, Everett Piper has a good piece, former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, just reminding us about the comments from that party, that party that betrayed the Jews in David Mammon's words. 
for years and years. In 2015, BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors, if we don't step up boldly and courageously to end the imperialist project called Israel, we're doomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Representative Jamal Bowman, as a black man, the guy who can't distinguish between a light switch oh, and a, right. the, the uh, fire alarm. As a black man in America, my experience of systemic injustice informs my view of what's happening right now in Israel and Palestine. Corey Bush, all these members of the Socialist Spice Girls, as we march in defense of black lives, we're saying that our own government is funding a brutal and militarized disposition toward our very existence from Ferguson to Palestine. And of course, I mean, the leaders of the gang here, Ilhan Omar, back in 2012, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. Uh, Sarah Jong, writer for the New York Times, part of the editorial board for a time. Um, whites are goblins who smell like dogs. We need to cancel all white people. Nicole Hannah-Jones of the famed 1619 Project. New York Times. New York Times, New York Times. You were David Mamet said New York Times and the New Yorker were like our Rialto and our Bible. The, the New York Times just hired a reporter who has previously praised Hitler to cover the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Praised Hitler, like um, Palestinian filmmaker. Now he's a reporter for the New York Times. Like, there's no interpretation. Social media postings praising Hitler, and in the context of the Holocaust as well. New York Times. That's the New York Times today. Nicole Hannah Jones. Whites are barbaric devils and savage people who pump drugs and guns into the black community and the black people into the squalor of segregated urban ghettos and continue to be bloodsuckers blood in our community. Whites, Jews, blacks, Palestinians, the dividing lines between the oppressed and the oppressors. That's the, that is the uh, value proposition of the left. And it's helpful that David Mammon is calling it out. Now, part of what the left does, just so you understand why there's not going to be a turning uh, away, Joshua Zeitz writes in uh, Politico, um, certainly he is critical of the new left, there's no question, and that scales have fallen from many eyes here. But he also uh, says this, and this is where um, you know you just can't extract yourself from the identitarian politics of the day if you're on the left you just i don't know what the magnetism of it is but it's there um he uh, uh says that you know the the jews certainly probably won't be uh turning to the republican party because it's a party that's been given over to well let me use his words here a political organization thoroughly in the thrall of white Christian nationalists, many, whom many Jews view as much more immediate threat to their community. <laughs> is that what the Republican Party is? Mm-hmm. But that's the sales job that the left does to these different coalition partners. We'll see. We'll see. And, um, by the way, uh, per Mamet and uh, those presidents that wouldn't meet with the Israeli prime minister in peacetime, that 
uh, provided U.S. taxpayer dollars to Iran so Iran could uh, arm terrorist groups to kill Jews? I mean, are, is that too many dots to connect for people? No, that's spot on. How, how, how do you defend that exactly? Well, you just turn away. You avert your eyes. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, with another tour de force yesterday, when asked about the uh, incidents of anti-Semitism, she's asked about anti-Semitism. Listen to what her response is, where she goes immediately. Level of concern right now about the potential rise of anti-Semitism in light of everything that's going on in Israel. So a couple of things. Um, look, um, uh, we have not seen... Uh, any credible uh, threats. I know there's been always questions about uh, credible threats, uh, and so I uh, just want to make sure that that's out there. But look, uh, Muslim and those perceived uh, to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate uh, number of hate-fueled attacks, and certainly President Biden understands that many of our Muslim Arab Arab Americans and Palestinian American loved ones and neighbors are worried about the hate being directed at their communities, and that is something you heard the president speak to. So she's asked about anti-Semitism, and she goes off on this riff about um, Muslim Americans supposedly be being uh, targeted uh, with hate. Well, I mean, Gov- it, yeah, Governor Pritzker did the same thing yesterday. I mean, he's Jewish. In the last two weeks since the Israel-Hamas war began, here in Illinois, we've seen an alarming increase in anti-Arabism, in Islamophobia. In anti-Semitism. He did say anti-Semitism. You throw it all in together. Right. Which is exactly what you, it's all of the false equivalences. No no one is, you know, no one conservative talk radio, I don't know, point them out if they are, certainly not doing it here. No one is promoting any, uh, any uh, violence, bad behavior, even bad behavior. Because, I mean, when you talk about hate directed, you know, that that's a catch-all for them. I mean, they they make uh, – th- these two hate crimes are the same. Uh, somebody uses an epithet in the direction of a Muslim, uh, a Islamo-fascist shoots up an Orlando nightclub. Those are both hate crimes, and they're categorized as two hate crimes. This is how they advance these false equivalences. So nobody is saying to uh, – to to behave badly in the direction of anybody based on their identity and their their faith and so nobody is saying that there's no advocacy for that so now that we understand that peaceful polists of all stripes and denominations want people to exist in a society that respects peaceful pluralists of all Stripes and denominations. Okay, that's the baseline. So you just cut through all this white noise and all this sentimental pandering from hacks like Pritzker. And, I mean, honestly, could Karine Jean-Pierre be any dumber? I mean, just honestly. It's so embarrassing. She's embarrassing. She's, if she had any, any self-trust her, if she had any self-awareness, uh, it's just staggering. Talk about idiocracy. She, she's right out of a Mike Judge movie, honestly. But, um, but that's, this is what they do. So, so, we, so nobody's advocating for it, so they have to create boogeymen. They create boogeymen that are threats. The, why, the, 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 that paragraph you heard, 
me read from the piece in the Politico. A party enthralled to white Christian nationalists. Really, the Republican Party, which is uh, pretty much uniformly standing with and advocating on behalf of the state of Israel and um, eradicating Islamic terrorists, that that is something that is poses a greater threat to Jewish Americans than uh, a, a Hamas-sympathizing Democrat Socialist Party. I, I mean, I just, just like, you have to connect the dots for me. But you don't have to connect the dots because it's not about, it's not evidence-based. It's not logic-based. Got a text message. Dan and Amy, have Jewish representatives Nadler, Raskin, Schumer denounced the squad yet? You know, the, the, look how much it took for them to censure Ilhan Omar after a string of ignorant anti-Semitic remarks. Not just anti-Semitic, just general ignorance, but of course uh, anti-Semitism punctuated uh, many of her remarks over the years. Look how long it took, and it was a party line. I mean, it's just... I mean, look, if, if, if Mamet's word, if you're a, an American Jew... And Mamet's words does, don't resonate with you, then nothing that we say will. I understand it, which is why it's so important that somebody like David Mamet speak up as he did, and more should. Jerry and o at O'Hare, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for taking my call. Can I ask why is it that whenever a Democrat is in the White House? Therefore, their heads are so far up their rear ends when it comes to foreign policy that their policies always make our country and the world a more dangerous place. Carter, we had the Ayatollah. Bill Clinton could have taken out Osama bin Laden numerous times. Obama hated Israel so much that he openly worked with Iran to give them a nuclear weapon. Now we got this idiot. What is it with the Democrats that with their foreign policies? What is going on there? Uh, thanks for the call, Jerry. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, there's a good uh, piece in the journal by Walter Russell Mead uh, that focuses on China. And, but also his larger point is how um, America from Trump to Biden has lost its deterrent effect on bad actors, whether it's the Chinese communists or uh, state sponsors of terror like Iran, uh, Russian dictators lost its deterrent effect, and that's uh, that's a that's a that's a big deal. They don't we don't believe that uh, they don't believe that America is exceptional. You hear them say it explicitly. Uh, they don't believe that um, um, we should uh, you know be the global superpower that we are. Uh, they believe that, uh, like it was the case during Obama, you know, hey, it's not uh, it's not uh, uh, violent Islamists. It's a violent extremists. Don't use the term radical Islam. Oh, that's right. These are um, terrorists are just friends we haven't made yet. You know what these remember uh, the ISIS were the JV squad or something. Remember that when yeah, Obama said that. Well, I, oh ISIS, God. Hamas, all these young men yeah. need is um, a job, a job paying fifteen bucks an hour. Yep, they need job programs. That's the only thing standing between uh, you know us and them and getting along famously. Oh, that they was just believe phenomenal. things. They believe things about America that aren't true. But even more to the point, they believe things about human nature that aren't true. That's the key. 
you know, this is like Thomas Sowell Conflict Divisions 101. They just have a complete, at least th- those that are sort of just honestly uh, terrible public policymakers, they just believe things about human nature that are not true and cannot be remade. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. of the morning, Dan and Amy, is Harvard Harris poll out that uh, when it comes to the presidential horse race, has Trump up five on Biden? And actually, if you include RFK Jr. as an independent candidate, Trump wins by six. If you include RFK Jr. and Cornell West, Trump wins by seven. Interestingly, while Trump is up uh, by five, uh, Joe Biden, any and if you eliminate undecideds, if you force leaners to choose, Trump wins fifty two forty eight in this survey, snapshot in time. But interestingly, if you do the same thing with DeSantis and Haley, Biden beats both DeSantis and Haley right now. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. That electability question that. Uh, DeSantis and Haley and others are attempting to, and the donor class by extension, many in the donor class, not completely, but many in the GOP donor class are trying to make central, um, not getting the answer you want. Got a bit of a problem there making that argument, Harvard-Harris poll. Uh, But the uh, uh, thing I wanted to talk about more is this question that uh, they, the pollsters put to those who were surveyed and it's broken out by age and other demographics but particularly by age and the question is do you think the Hamas killing of 1200 Israel Israeli civilians on Israel uh, can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians or is it not justified is what was Hamas did justified or not justified 90, 65 and older, 
91 to 9, not justified. 55 to 64, 89 to 11, not justified. 45 to 54, age, 77, 23, not justified. What about people in their late teens and early 20s? 35 to 44, age, 61 to 39. Do you, do you notice a trend yep. as you go from 65 plus to the youngest cohort? 35, 54, 61, 39, not justified. 25, 34, 52, 48, Ooh. not justified. 18 to 24, 51 to 49, justified. A majority of 18 to 24 year olds believe the Hamas terrorist attack was justified. Barely a majority of 25 to 34 year olds believe it wasn't. Barely. And then, you know, it spreads as you go up. Gio, I wonder if that has something to do with what has happened to pre-K through post-secondary education over the span of these age groups, you know, the span of the matriculation dates of these age groups. Yeah, I mean, CPS teachers, because they're part of CTU, and CTU is part of BLM, and BLM is pro-Palestine, pro-Palestinian. You know, they, they are telling them to go to the rallies. They put in locations, and when the locations change because it's too hot of an area, then they inform them, okay, here's a new location, go now. Um, Wear your red. Something even more disturbing. So 18, 51% of 18 to 24-year-olds think the terrorist attack was justified. So sad. Companion question. Do you think the attacks on Jews were genocidal in nature or not genocidal? 62% of 18 to 24-year-olds think the attacks were genocidal. So that means a majority of, well, that means, uh, that, you know, a significant percentage of those who thought the attacks were genocidal believe them justified nonetheless. So they're justifying genocide. Okay, that's a... Another issue to deal with. Genocidal attacks that were justified. Is there a circumstance under which a genocide is justified? Well, that'd be an interesting. Be interesting to get those responses. Now, the flip side is you could say, well, they didn't. You know, these eighteen to twenty-four year olds, most of them are so ill-educated that they didn't even understand the question. It's possible, but um, there's definitely something wrong here. There's definitely something wrong here. Uh, and um, our friend uh, Gad Saad, the uh, evolutionary behavioral scientist from Canada, uh, he posted this. I'm a very optimistic person. I'm a fighter for Western values and liberties. I'm a dogged defender of science, reason, and common sense. I must, so, I must say, though, that I'm unsure that the West can recover from its multi-front civilizational suicide. Yes, I've talked about these issues for decades, wrote a book about it, but the past few weeks have crystallized the extent to which the problem has become intractable. It will be a long and ultimately bloody demise, and the West will be the first society in recorded history to fully self-implode due to its parasitic ideological rapture. It is a gargantuan Greek tragedy that will shape the future of humanity. This is not hyperbole. Your grandchildren will pay a very high price 
for your progressive arrogance rooted in the pursuit of unicornia that exists in the, only in the recesses of deeply flawed, parasitized, parasitized minds. The end of the West. Uh, do you see this as a bellwether the last few weeks as Gad Saad does? By the way, uh, uh, a couple episodes back I did a, a uh, Gad was on my counterculture podcast which you can get American Greatness, all the podcast platforms. Um, really good conversation. He's a really sharp and entertaining and funny guy. So I'd encourage you to, if you're not familiar with Gad Saad, get familiar with him. Pick up his books too, including The Parasitic Mind, which is why he uses the word parasite, uh, parasitic and parasitize so much. Anyway, the larger question, end of the West. End of the West. The first society in recorded history to fully self-implode due to its parasitic ideological rapture. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Joe in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, with, with this age group, the perceived oppression of people, when it comes to that, the ends justify the means no matter what it is. When it was Trump, you know, the perceived oppression of women or transgenders, or people coming across the border illegally. The, the ends justify the means with this group, no matter what the means are. Thanks for the call, Joe. Bob Buffalo Grove. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for uh, taking my call. With regards to your poll at the beginning, uh, with Trump leading, I have a problem with these polls, because isn't that a nationwide poll? It's going to be the six or seven swing states that are going to decide this election. I can almost guarantee that Trump will not get the um, um, uh, plurality or majority of the uh, votes. Uh, but the swing states are going to decide it. So where's the polls in the swing states? Yeah, they're out there, Bob. That's that's not the point of this poll. And I said didn't want to really go down that rabbit hole. But there's a lot of swing state polls that have been out that suggest Trump is up on Biden, which is how you get the the national five-point spread, which is outside the margin of error. In addition to that, actually states that I wouldn't call swing states anymore may become swing states again if things continue on this path. Uh, for example, there was an Emerson poll out last week that had Trump out f up 42-34 on Biden. So, yeah, things are interesting. It's a, it's a, The landscape is getting more and more receptive to Trump could change got a year to go before the election and uh primary elections too and and multiple criminal trials so things could change i'm just describing what it is now jan in hoffman estates hi yeah listen they ought to uh pull these 18 to 24 year olds when they get their draft notice in the mail uh how, how many of them are going to show up for this uh, genocide that they want to take place also they should pull uh, how many people think that they're smart in this country? Because I think we have a plurality of stupid people in this country. Oh, well, we have plenty of stupid. Thanks for the call. I mean, a, a lot of it is, I mean, I, I would distinguish um, ignorant from stupid. They've been um, conditioned to be ignorant and to behave in ignorant ways and to think things that are not true. doesn't mean they don't have the capacity. Right, they just but, have, they, there's, they've just been... 
uh, you know, the, if you spend, uh, I don't know, your formative years in a totalitarian re-education camp, uh, expect people to come out as uh, useful idiots for the regime. Well, I can, and I can suggest something. If you have a kid or a grandchild between 18 and 24 years old in that age group that you're talking about that that is pro-genocide for the Jewish people, there's a great article in the Daily Wire. They interviewed a woman named Cherie, and she didn't want to give her last name, but she's in charge of um, take, taking corpses to prepare them for burial. And what she said, she said, we wash the bodies and prepare them for burial. We try to bring them dignity and death. I heard stories about Auschwitz as a child growing up in New Jersey, but I've never seen anything worse than the Holocaust, and now I have. These barbarians, what they did is beyond words. There's evidence of mass rape so brutal that they broke the victims' pelvises. Women, grandmothers, and children. People whose head had been cut off. Women standing in their nightdresses, woken up and shot. Faces blasted off. Heads smashed and their brains spilling out. A baby cut out of a pregnant woman and beheaded. And then her mother was beheaded. Women and children burned to charcoal. Because a lot of people ran to their safe rooms. And when those Hamas terrorists couldn't get in, they just burnt the house down. So these are atrocities that you really just have to point out. It's just it's e- email it to your grandkids or your your children just to let them know, hey, this is what's going on. Because it's uh, cool right now, Dan. I know this sounds really weird, but kids are like, oh yeah, it's cool. You know, let's go to that pro-Palestinian rally. Like, do you even know what you're going to? Do you even know what you're supporting? It's so bizarre to me. But you're right. They've been taught this in school. They've been programmed this way. Um, here's a Niles West. Niles West High School, Merrick Garland's alma mater. Under the direction of English teacher Ani Fatima. This is what's happening at Niles West High School, right there in Skokie. A sit-in. And if you watch the video, a sit-in with uh, Palestinian flags everywhere. And English teacher Ani Fatima walking up and down the, the hallway saying this right over the other it is long past time to prioritize the well-being of students at niles west who struggle because of their identity i would like to have five minutes of silence for those we love for those who we know for those who have died for those who struggle for those And that uh, was more like video with a music bed of them walking through the hallways with their Palestinian flags and protesting. Uh, Or, you know, expressing their solidarity and so forth. And I mean, uh, again, um, a Palestinian people who are uh, not terrorists or not terrorist sympathizers, fine. I mean, and people have a right to to protest and express their views in support of the Palestinian people, even their noxious views in support of Hamas. But let's just understand what we're dealing with, and let's just understand what these institutions have become and what they now suborn. How do you think the Jewish kids at Niles West felt seeing that? Uh, I don't know if they're going to have Merrick Garland back for the graduation ceremony. Uh, Also, this in New York City. New York City protesters. You know, it's interesting what people say. You should 
maybe take notice of it, like when BLM protesters said, you know, pigs in a blanket, burn them like, uh, cook them like bacon or burn them like bacon. And we're talking about cops. You, know, you should maybe take notice of that. Like you should take notice of uh, uh, these uh, anti-Semites outside of the Sydney Opera House actually chanting gas the Jews. Uh, kids on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, extolling the virtues of martyrs, meaning, you know, terrorist suicide bombers and uh, terrorists generally. Uh, New York City protesters uh, just the other night where 19 were arrested. There's only one solution, Intifada Revolution, which uh, sort of like from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free, sort of has the same implication contextually, which is uh, elimination of the Jews. Yeah, calling for mass murder of Jews. Yep. Uh, Marty Naperville. Hey, you know, it's funny, just as you said, I think from river to sea is what Mar-a-Lago stands for anywhere. So it's, but anyway, uh, so that's kind of a funny thing. Anyway, I was going to say, you were just describing, Amy, about the atrocities that this woman is seeing by preparing these bodies and these kids. It doesn't phase them. Look on telephones. Look, every kid has a phone. When we were young and the exorcist came out, we were all scared to death oh, of it. Yes. Now they watch it as a, as a comedy on Halloween. Everybody is so desensitized to this stuff that it doesn't matter to them, and that's a problem. Thanks for the call, Marty. Good By the point. way, Mar-a-Lago is from the sea to the lake. Right. Lago, right. Spanish is lake. Uh, Greg in Schomburg. Hi, Dan and Amy. When the history is reviewed from the perspective of time, one of the stark contrasts I think that's going to ha- appear is the Catholic Church is huddled in a synodology situation over in Rome, talking about goofy stuff, while there is absolutely no statement from this Pope on this whole matter. At least there hasn't been any uh, statements with the level of prominence that should be from the moral authority of the world, in my view. Uh, thanks for the call, Greg. Yeah, um, actually, Bill McGurn has a good piece about Pope Francis, and... Um the muddled messaging coming from the Pope on this. Uh, this is over in the Wall Street Journal where Bill Markern writes. Um, Pope Francis called Biden on Sunday to talk about Gaza. Papal phone call came uh, amid Israel's public criticism of the Vatican's tendency to treat the Israel Defense Forces as morally equivalent to Hamas terrorists. Right. We do have that problem. That is a problem. Um, the Israeli embassy to uh, the Holy See said in the state that his statement reflected an immoral linguistic ambiguity. From reading it, there's no way to understand what happened, who are the aggressors, and who are the victims. Pope Francis since affirmed the right of Israelis to defend themselves and call for the release of Israel Israeli hostages. But then they called for uh, humanitarian law to be respected in Gaza, uh, even though here's what we know is happening with respect to that humanitarian aid that Hamas is complaining uh, is not being allowed in to provide to 
residents who are suffering. Uh, the spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces, John Conricus, on with Wolf Blitzer. Gaza. Hamas has fuel. Hamas has quite a lot of fuel, about a thousand liters, if not more than that. Um, and they can decide where to use that fuel. And I find it strikingly absent from the discussion, from many discussions, what is Hamas doing with the resources that it has. It's only about Israel and Egypt and UN and international organizations. What about Hamas? Why aren't the questions posed to Hamas? Why don't you use some of the fuel that you have stockpiled and hoarded in advance of this situation and use it for the civilians? So what I you're saying is that what you're saying, what, what I, if I understand what you're saying, Lieutenant Colonel, you're saying Hamas has fuel, but they're not making it available to the hospitals. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And they are using these poor civilians, which are not our enemy and not our target. They're using them cynically just in order to milk every drop of international pity and legitimacy for their horrific activities. Uh, and they're using their own civilians to do it. Hamas has fuel, and Hamas should use the fuel not to fight against Israel, but really to care about the civilians that they are responsible for. Um, just a little clarity on that topic. In addition to that, going back to Pope Francis, I mean, in the McGurn piece in particular, it's not just on uh, Israel where there's ambiguity, lack of moral clarity, which is a problem when you're a moral faith leader. I mean, you're supposed to be, uh, but also on Ukraine and particularly on China. And he notes that uh, the failure to raise the profile of one of the uh, most important uh, Catholics in the world, and I'm talking about uh, Hong Konger Jimmy Lai, who has been imprisoned by the Chinese communists. Um, and there's a new uh, documentary out about him. Uh, just that the, there is a, a an, an inability to speak with moral clarity about who represents good and who represents evil in this world from Pope Francis, particularly in these geopolitical matters. And it's a problem. Uh, we need a pope like Pope John Paul II again. No question about it, to Greg's point. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Amy, uh, you were referencing before another first-person account of the uh, horrors that were committed by Hamas in their terrorist attack in Gaza, uh, somebody that tended to the bodies. Yeah. Uh, we also have, and this is this is a, an important part of it. Uh, we had a screening. IDF did, Israeli Defense Forces did. Israeli Defense Forces Major General Mickey Edelstein uh, hosted a screening for the press. Oh yeah, Mike Tobin uh, was there from forty-three forty-three minutes to show the International Press Corps what occurred. Uh, Graham Wood, uh, writing for The Atlantic, recounted, Men, women, and children are shot, blown up, hunted, tortured, burned, and generally murdered in any horrible manner you could predict, and some you might not. The terrorists surrounded a Thai man 
they had shot in the gut, then bicker about what to do next. There's about 30,000 Thais that live in Israel. Many of them are farm workers. Give me a knife, one Hamas, uh, Hamas terrorist shouts. Instead, he finds a garden hoe, and he swings at the man's throat, taking thwack after thwack. And the video and was he, so grotesque, they couldn't put it on any news outlet. Um, something else, though, in addition to uh, recounting the horrors. Um, the most disturbing section, writes Graham Wood, was not visual at all. Like the clip of the father and his boys hunted in their pajamas, it was upsetting in part because it showed a relationship between parent and child. The clip is just a phone call placed by a terrorist to his family back in Gaza. He tells his father he's calling from a Jewish woman's phone. The phone recorded the call. He tells his father that his son is now a hero and that, quote, I killed 10 Jews with my own hands, unquote. And he tells his family about a dozen times that they should open up WhatsApp on his phone because he has sent photographs to prove what he's done. Put on mom, he says, your son is a hero. Uh, the uh, depravity, the sickness that is reflected in that exchange is blood-curdling. This is what you're dealing with. And if you don't believe uh, that sort of reporting, if you don't believe the first-person accounts, maybe you'll believe the son of Hamas. I actually had a chance to meet Masab Hassan Yusuf when his book, Son of Hamas, came out. There's a book club in the city that uh, I was invited to um, to, uh, to to you know have him talk about everybody read the book have him talk about his book it's really interesting. Masab Hassan Youssef is the son of one of the founders of Hamas, who then became uh, a asset for Shin Bet, the Israeli uh, intelligence agency. Okay. He converted to Christianity and he's now a U.S. citizen. Here's what he had to say to Jake Tapper and. I guess we can congratulate Jake Tapper for having him on, one of the few exceptions where congratulations is in order for the D.C. press corps. Um, here's what he had to say about Israelis, uh, the uh, Israelis' forthcoming ground invasion in Gaza. It's a wartime, unfortunately, and this war, uh, Israel did not start. Hamas started this war. And Hamas, in fact, uh, in this equation, uh, blood for money, they start a war every uh, few years. Whenever they want money, you know, they uh, shed uh, children's blood. Uh, this is their game. And this has to stop. This to ha have to come to an end. And unfortunately, the price is not going to be cheap. Uh, in fact, I feel very sorry for Israel that they have to go into Gaza where there are booby traps all over the place. And tunnels all over the place. I don't know how many Israeli soldiers have to die in order to uh, uh, destroy uh, Hamas. This is the most complicated mission a modern army uh, uh, has in our, uh, in our modern day. Now, what I suggest, you know, uh, to the Israelis, that they wait, they take their time, they collect intelligence. And what I need from the United States to give enough support. In fact, I would like to see the Navy SEALs taking part in this. I know this sounds horrible, but again, I speak as a taxpayer, as an American today, that we need to be unified. We need to give Israel the support. We need to free Palestinians and free Gaza from Hamas ruling. 
For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Batya Unger-Sargon. She's the Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek. She's also the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batya, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Thank you so much for having me and for your excellent coverage of this. Uh, good coverage of this conflict, as you know, has been in short supply due to the morally depraved nature of our press corps. So thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Yeah, um, the, you uh, coined a phrase, or it was certainly a nice turn of a phrase, uh, what you've seen in terms of a lot of the coverage from the D.C. press corps in America uh, is individuals acting as, I'm quoting you, stenographers for terrorists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So last week, um, Hamas put out a um, essentially a press release that Israel had bombed a hospital and killed 500 Palestinians who were sheltering there. Um, and, you know, none of that turned out to be true. Um, the hospital is still standing. A Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket detonated in the parking lot. We don't know how many people were killed, but it definitely wasn't 500 people. If the uh, American press corps had waited 17 minutes, they would have known that the words of this baby-mutilating terror organization should not be trusted if they didn't know it already. Um, And yet they couldn't wait to put out articles. And I'm talking about the biggest legacy press, the New York Times, the Washington Post, I think even the Wall Street Journal, CNN, of course, MSNBC, just ran with this headline um, that 500 people were killed in a hospital by Israel because they were so desperate to stop talking about Israel and Jews as the victims and get them back into the position of the perpetrators because of the woke mindset that sees the world that way. I do just want to respond briefly to something that um, the son of Hamas said. Israel does not want American troops on the ground. Israel is extremely proud of the fact that they have always defended themselves. Um, and I, I, I also sort of tend to agree with that. Um, well, I think what was really important about the Trump doctrine in foreign policy was you know, Trump wanted strong allies who could stand on their own and defend themselves. And luckily, Israel is such an ally. So I think that, you know, we should be very careful about talking about American troops on the ground because that is actually not in Israel's interest, and Israel doesn't want it. Well, what about having American troops on the ground like the Delta Force or Navy SEALs uh, in order to get the 10 American hostages back and others? Um, So we don't know very much about the 10 American hostages. We know that at least some of them are members of the IDF. I understand that they are Americans and we cannot abandon them. I think President Biden's doing a lot of negotiating behind the scenes to get them back. But look, let's be honest. What Hamas wanted to do was show Israel was weak so that there would be no Saudi normalization with Israel, right? They wanted to show that Israel is a weak country that does not have to be taken seriously. Any um, military assistance that the U.S. does that involves troops on the ground, that involves more than diplomatic cover and artillery, is going to perpetuate that view, which is false, by the way, that Israel can't defend itself. Israel can defend itself. What it needs is the cover from the U.S. for it to be able to do so when you have so many anti-Semites saying they don't have the right to do that. What's your read on the the hostages who've been released, the um, mom and daughter who are Americans uh, from Chicago, the Chicago area that we've been covering, and then these uh, two uh, older women who were released, 79 and 85-year-old Jewish women, 
they were, you know, and, and Hamas does the, you know, for humanitarian reasons. All, of course, they didn't release their equally elderly husbands. So, so what's the play here? Is it to, you know, to, to from from their perspective, show like good faith to keep uh, America at bay with respect to the first release, and and then it's PR on the second release, or what's your interpretation? It's a sick, sick game to reverse the roles here to show themselves as the humanitarians and to um, to push off the inevitable ground invasion. It's just so horrifying because, of course, every person seeing hostages released, like your heart sings, you feel so grateful to God. But also what they're doing is they're trying to complicate the situation and to make all of these governments that have foreign nationals as hostages pressure Israel not to do a ground incursion. And, you know, I, I'm not sure when the right time for that ground incursion is, but I, I know that these, these are animals. These are monsters, what they're doing here. Um, do I have your permission to tell a sort of spiritual story about this? Sure, <laughs> yes. Sure. My sister uh, lives in Chicago, and she knows the, the mother and daughter who were released. Um, and she's been organizing all of these prayer vigils um, while they were uh, in captivity. And the morning they were released, her friend came over to her and said, there's a thing in Judaism where you thank God ahead of time for the salvation because you're so certain that God is going to deliver. And she said, why don't we paint posters that say, welcome home, Judith, to put on the, on her front door because we're so sure God is going to get her out of this situation. And so they started painting these signs, and literally two hours later they found out that she had been released. Um, And so there's a a real feeling of euphoria in the Jewish community in Chicago because they feel that the power of prayer really, really delivered here. Yeah. And they still have eight family members, too, that are still being held hostage. Yeah. Do you know about how they were treated or anything during? I mean, I read different accounts that um, the um, Natalie said, you know, they treated her well. But is she just saying that, do you think, or? Right. So you can't really um, believe a lot of what they're saying, because obviously they all feel very strongly that they need to protect um, the people who are still in captivity. Um, One of the women who was released yesterday, Yocheved, um, her husband is still in captivity. She was seen sort of shaking the hand and saying goodbye and shalom, which means goodbye and peace to the Hamas agent who handed her over to the Red Cross, and much has been made of that. But, I mean, you have to understand this woman's husband is still in their hands. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but she, but she did admit in a, in a press conference that she had been beaten mercilessly by the men who had taken her hostage. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> you could probably, could probably believe that. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you see, see any, um, uh, any reckoning with the left in this country here, uh, the anti-Semitic left, do you see any sort of um, renew or new understanding in any quarter, the press or any other quarter, that um, the these people, the Rashida Talibs and the Ilhan Omars and the professors uh, across the country, you know who I'm describing, from Yale to Cornell to the Art Institute School here in Chicago that um, these are people whose ideas belong in the ash heap of history. And I didn't really realize it until now, but now I realize it. Do you, do you get any sense that there is any movement in that direction? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think a lot of people, this has been a real mask off moment for the far left, for how deeply, not just anti-Semitic, but just inhuman. Yeah. I mean, just, just justifying the most, 
horrific. You couldn't even imagine. You couldn't. They, they did things that are worse than the Nazis. I have a very close friend who's a Holocaust survivor, and we've been sort of experiencing this together, reading the press together, going through it. She'll read stories in the press and say to me, this happened to me, that happened to me, that happened to me, telling me stories she hasn't told for 78 years. And finally, some of the reports that came out this week, she said, that the Nazis never went that far. They never they they didn't see us as human, and so there was they weren't invested in you know t- hours long torture sessions, right? Torturing children in front of their parents, worse than the Nazis. And just people on the left, the far left, justify not just ha- can't find it in their hearts to condemn it, but you can see it in the way they talk about the ceasefire. Ceasefire now means this was okay with me what Hamas did. That's what ceasefire now means. She is Batya Unger-Sarga, Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek, author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batya, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan and Amy. God bless you guys. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. All right, it's time for in-depth history with uh, high school teacher Frank from Arlington Heights because there's nothing new in this world. It's just the history we don't know. Frank, oh, take it away. Like Today I'd like to... Good morning. Today I'd like to share a story about hiding treasure in plain sight in ancient times. Rome, of course, has a rich cultural heritage, including the five Romance languages that derive from Latin, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, and Romanian. This last one is a little bit off, not near the others, but this occurred because the Romans conquered the province of Dacia in 106 AD after a long struggle by the Emperor Trajan. Dacia was an appealing target to Rome because of its Black Sea coast, but also because of its vast gold and silver mines. Dacia was led by a wily and devious king named Decebalus, and he accumulated a huge stash of gold and silver. And as the Romans broke through, he needed to hide it. So, of course, what he did was he had slaves and captives redirect the flow of a local river and then dug a cavity in the mudflat and buried his treasure there and reset the river back on course. Then he killed all the witnesses, or most of them. <laughs> Later, Decebalus was cornered and committed suicide rather than be humiliated in a Roman triumph. Some of his loot was later found by the Romans and fed their treasury for decades to come. I think the lesson from this is that if we ever see the Army Corps of Engineers redirecting the flow of the Potomac in Washington, D.C., that we know something is up with the Biden White House. Oh, that's beautiful. That's the way to connect the past to the present. Frank from Arlington Heights, his in-depth history. Wonderful, Frank. Thanks so much. Getting better every week. I love it. I love it. Now we just need to get a little jingle to go along with yeah, that in my tagline. Yeah, We're working on it. Frank, very good. Thank you, Frank. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Because they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, Oregon high school students. And you know if it happens in the Pacific Northwest, it's soon to come to CPS. Well, any bad idea is really, regardless of from where it emanates. 
Oregon high school students will not have to prove basic mastery of reading, writing, or math to graduate from high school until at least 2029. <laughs> Why even go to school then? Uh, you're not going to learn and you're not going to be disciplined. Okay? Reading, writing, and math will will be, be important. Optional? They'll be important in the future. Oh, but not now. Until what <laughs> no. year did you say? Was this thing 2029. Oh, in in, 2029. in exactly six years, it's going to be important for kids to learn how to read and write and do math. Are you sure it, this isn't an, an article from The Onion, Dan? Um, unless The Onion bought Oregon Live, The Oregonian, uh, without... Uh, uh, anyone's knowledge? No, I don't think so. Oh. Uh, the vote against uh, the vote went against the desires of dozens of Oregonians who submitted public comments, insisting the standards should be reinstated. Boy, <laughs> so controversial. The um, the idea that kids graduating from high school should have be, should be able to demonstrate a basic competency with reading, writing, and arithmetic. This is controversial. So controversial that it's. Uh, been pushed off until 2029 in Oregon. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. The leaders at the Oregon Department of Education, there's a oxymoronic phrase, said requiring all students to pass one of several standardized tests, standardized tests or create an in-depth assignment their teacher judged as meeting state standards was a harmful hurdle for historically marginalized students. You see, higher rates of students of color, students learning English as a second language, and students with disabilities ended up having to take intensive senior year writing and math classes to prove they deserved a diploma. I mean, God forbid anybody have to do the work uh, to acquire the skills to be prepared for the workforce or college or, uh, right. Uh, that, that denied those students, they say, the opportunity to take an elective. Exactly. How can I take, uh, you know, identitarian intersectionality politics uh, 201 if I have to spend my time learning how to read, write, and do math? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Now, now again here, you know, because these are reasonable people. These are educators, well, they're, yeah, they're your betters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, members of the State Board of Education in Oregon, which I guarantee you mirror the members of the Illinois State Board of Education or the administrators in CPS or Elgin U46 or any number of school districts in the state, the, the state-mandated state standardized tests will still be administered to most high school students. They just won't mean anything. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> so, we're going to keep up appearances, but if uh, you come back and you uh, score below the Mendoza line on the state standardized test, you're graduating anyway. You're out of here, buddy. This is great. This is great. Uh, yeah, and, and then again, as if we're not paying enough to... Uh, give people a high school education at the post-secondary level. And uh, as I've said many, many times, ask any community college president, even states, most state school presidents, to tell you how much they spend on remediation for incoming freshmen that are not uh, prepared to do uh, college-level work. Wow. Um, that's where it's at. That's where it's at. Uh, th- and this is all related, they say, to... To what? Uh, well, in part to... 
consequences just... of the COVID lockdowns. Exactly. Oh yeah, exactly. blame the the policy that you put in place. Now you're giving you're using that as an excuse for everything. Correct. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You agree don't with you me on something. Don't you want uh, this artificial hurdle removed from your kids' schools? Because, you know, I'll tell you what, there's nothing more kind, more charitable that you can do for a young person than have no expectations for them, require nothing of them, and move them along into the world without the skills to compete. That is so compassionate. They're not going to build mental discipline or reasoning purpose in life i mean having homework gave you purpose taking a test gave you a reason to study it was you know you wanted to accomplish something well there there used to be a point the the point to k through 12 education used to be to begin developing uh young people's intellectual social uh capacities it used to be we, we want to um, incubate well-rounded, good citizens. That's not the point anymore. You just have to understand the point of K-12 through education, really all of education in America, with few exceptions, is to be what? Incubators of political activism for the left. And you don't need to write or read or do math to be a loyal apparatchik. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line. Victor Davis Hansen takes up this matter at the collegiate level with a good idea, a couple of good ideas, um, and he also distinguishes what the point of college education used to be versus what it is today. What college used to be, the purposes, one. Universities assured America that their preeminent math, science, technology, and engineering departments, along with their professional medical and business schools, remain largely apolitical, research-oriented, and meritocratic. Well, I mean, we've piled up the evidence to suggest that's no longer the case. That's by the boards. That's number one. Number two, the bachelor's degree was once acknowledged as solid proof of a general education. That's by the boards, too. So what's the point? So here's what Victor Davis Hansen suggests. I mean, some of these things that you've heard before, but um, there's one in particular that um, I like. And this is, again, not going to happen in Illinois because of the power structure here, but it could happen in other states. And um, maybe have a cascading effect, even in states that have completely lost the narrative like Illinois. Um, So. Of course, uh, he writes, does VDH, reform will only come through curtailing the government's handouts that fuel multi-billion dollar university endowments. Uh, He, like Steve Moore, uh, believes that uh, the income from the roughly $1 trillion of America's tax-exempt university endowments should be taxed. Perhaps there would not be quite enough money for courses on cartoons, cross-dressing, and BLM then. Number one. Number two, stop federal funds to any university that refuses to ensure Bill of Rights protections for its students like that. And number three, if the SAT and ACT are increasingly dropped for for admissions to universities, which is happening, no standards in or out, 
Then, VDH argues, an exit version of them should be required to ensure that all BA and BS degrees certify at least a minimum competence in math, science, and general knowledge. Maybe that's the fight before us, is standards in and standards out. Uh, the idea that you're going to get uh, uh, almost, so many alums to stop donating to their uh, the colleges they attended because of the football team or the basketball team or whatever, that's maybe you were having a temporary moment here, but don't expect it to last. The idea that you're going to get the government out of this business of subsidizing high tuition, um, that's a big lift. Uh, but maybe the standards to ensure there's value there, like some universities have have done to, you know, with respect to income share agreements and other ways to claw back money if uh you know, if, if your degree isn't put you in a position to be successful in life, starting with being able to pay back your student loans. I like the, the entrance and the exit. You want to drop SAT, ACT, fine, but we're going to have an exit exam, so you better make the use of your four years at uh, college or your two years at a community college, for that matter. I like that. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Ben in St. Charles, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Ben. Ben. Oh, hey, sorry. Sorry, I apologize. Uh, yeah, no, I was um, listening to you, and I worked for a local district, not in St. Charles, but um, and we are seeing the exact thing that you're talking about where uh, everything is a race to equity. It's filtered through that lens, and the only way to achieve that functionally is if every standard is pushed to the lowest possible denominator, and we're seeing students suffer massively across the board because of the lack of standards, the lack of rigor, the lack of any sort of, sorry, any sort of um, accountability. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and the and the parents uh, are cheerleading this. That's what parents expect from the kids' education is for them to be ill-equipped to uh, to 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 be successful and independent in the real world once they ultimately get out. Unfortunately, we're finding that the the, the reason that this is able to happen <clears throat> is a lack of active across-the-board parent involvement. We try and get parents to the school all the time. And we find that the turnout is low. And a lot of times it's for practical reasons. Parents are working when we're offering students to go there. Parents are unable to make it because of other child care issues. And I know that that sounds like an excuse, but we've pulled and a lot of the parents are saying that that's the issue. So without a lack of uh, or with a lack of parent involvement, they're getting steamrolled by the, the school board that doesn't really appear to care or value their input in the way that's necessary. So it's, it's kind of coming from both ends. You got, you got the top down structure where we're told, here's what we got to do. And then we're getting, you know, no feedback and pushback from the community because they lack the tools uh, and the availability to do so. And so we're just kind of stuck managing as best we can, but we are seeing colleges coming to us saying, what are you doing? They, these kids have to take <laughs> lower than one one and they can't even, and they've got to pay for that. So you're talking about a financial burden that's being foisted upon the students because of a lack of rigor at the school. And it's, it's heartbreaking on one hand and on another, it's, it's infuriating because the end result is a society that we splinter. You have districts that are doing the right thing. And then you have some that aren't and we splinter because if you attend that you're more successful. So it's really, it's really a terrible outcome that I don't understand how people can't see that that's what's happening.
Thanks for the call, Ben. And, and remember what Mayor Johnson, you know, remember, he taught for four years valiantly in the Chicago public school system. His goal was to eliminate standardized tests. Pushing, like, to eliminate sort of the standardization of our public schools. Um, my students sometimes would get frustrated. I didn't offer any test prep. Oh, that's nice. Many of my other colleagues were doing it at the time. I was pushing our administration to move away from that. To be quite frank with you, I didn't issue a lot of homework for students. Um, that was my own way of sort of rebelling against the structure. Um, I, I don't think I ever gave a kid an F. I just, I, I, don't, I don't know how a student sits in front of you and fails. I know some professors may find that, you know, you know it's slightly troubling because <laughs> you've probably seen other things. But Oh, he's so woke. Before there was Oregon, there was BLM Brandon. Yeah, there's no question that that's what's happening. And uh, as uh, Ben from St. Charles taught, and so this is what you're paying the highest property taxes in the country for? Um, something that he mentioned, though, too, about parents who are working and so forth. You know, if you had um, enlightened administrators, a school board, general assembly, constitutional officers, somebody might suggest this. You know, um, we, we don't live in 1950 America anymore. And so a lot of parents are, uh, a lot of families have uh, double income. You know, both parents are working so they can pay those property taxes so they can send their kids to these schools. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should orient the school day to mom and dad's work day so you don't have these gaps. Oh. Uh, you, you, there's, there's nothing um, biblical about uh, the, the school day. So why don't you orient it into to what today's, America looks like in terms of workforce participation and family life. But but that would require the sort of thinking and planning, and it probably would be inconvenient for some teachers and so on and so forth. But, I mean, these are the conversations you, you would be having if you were interested in a child's social and intellectual development rather than just being a, another political cog in the wheel. I, I know there are school districts that are the exception, but that's the point. They're the exception. Just as Ben said, college pre- college professors or presidents coming back to them and saying, what are you doing? And then, of course, you could shoot right back. What are you guys doing? It's a mess up and down the the educational hierarchy. Uh, Chris and Carrie. Hey, good morning, guys. I've been calling your show for a few years now, and the message has been repeated over and over again. My wife is a teacher, and she came from the private sector, and she beats her head against the wall because there's no accountability. These teachers, from the moment they enter school, they drink the Kool-Aid. They only know one way to, to, to do it, and there's, like I said, no accountability. In the private sector, these people would have been fired. She can't take it. it it's so ridiculous. And these parents aren't involved, like that like caller before me was saying. We need parents to be involved. She asks these parents to read to their kids, beginning readers, read to these kids every night. She wants them to sign off on these things. The, thing, the, the papers come back unsigned. These kids tell her, my parents never look at my schoolwork. I mean, what the hell? Get off your phones and be involved in your child's life. Let them succeed. Be an advocate for your kid. Get off the phone and be an advocate. It, uh, it's, it's tiresome. Thanks, Chris. Matt and Alsop. Hey, good morning. You know, Dan, earlier you said that uh, a lot of these schools become political 
not apertures, but, you know, if kids don't need to have reading and writing and arithmetic, they become these political zealots or apertures of political science, which is true. But you know what else? I think they also um, lose the ability to become free thinkers or at the very least don't have a good groundwork to become a free thinking adult. And I just wanted to share, I have seven kids under 10 years old. Wow. I go to work. I go to work. My wife stays home. She went to school to be a teacher. She got certified in the state of Illinois to be able to teach um, elementary education and special education. And it was when she was student teaching that she made the decision that she didn't want to put her kids in public school. And so she joined a homeschool co-op. And I'm just going to say it's made all the difference. So mm. Thank you for Good taking for my you. call. Thanks for the call, Matt. Well, at least Matt's work. kids and Elsa, he's got seven of them. You've got some people that are producing, are going to produce, uh, uh, you know, free-thinking uh, citizens who provide some hope for the state and the country, if they stay in Illinois, but for the country nonetheless. Sasha, Southside. Yes, hi. Um, I've been a teacher in CPS for over 25 years, and uh, um but it's the government. The government is hand-feeding these, these parents and these kids. They're giving them everything. They took away attendance. They don't need to worry about attendance. I had a student that was absent for almost uh, over 100 days of school, and he still moved on. Um, I've had kids on house arrest. I've had students that were 15 in eighth grade. I mean, they just keep moving them on, but it's the parent accountability. They're not only as parents accountable, and it's because of our government, again, that's just hand-feeding everything to them. Thanks for the call, Sasha. George, Naperville. Yeah, Dan, this is great news for all the Spignolis out there. Fast times at Ridgemont High. Spicoli, not Spignoli, but yeah, thanks thanks for the call, George. Yeah, anybody who's ordering pizza during class to the chagrin of Mr. Hand, this is good news. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois. But you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan. To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when. You're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That theme music means it's time for our weekly confab with Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints, wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Ted, thanks for joining us as always. Uh, good morning, guys. So um, we got a bit of this last week from you, but I saw you were on uh, John Cass's Chicago Way podcast offering more color on your interactions with uh, – migrants uh, who are stationed outside of police stations uh, across Chicagoland, talking to Venezuelan migrants, uh, possibly migrants from other countries. And just sort of give us uh, some some more detail on those interactions, the, the perspective of those who 
have made their way to Chicago one way or the other and are um, living on the streets waiting for 10 cities or something um, more upscale from the city? Well, you know, I, I heard lots of different stories, and it depends on who you talk to. Um, you know, if, if I think about about this, you know, you arrive, I, I arrived there, I had no idea what to expect. You know, I'm, I'm obviously, well, I could just walk up, and I walk up to the police station. There's, you know, there's got to be easy, 60, 70, I'm, I'm guessing 80, maybe 100 tents across the, the front sidewalk of the police station. So you're saying, wow, you know, they really have taken over. And so I just walked up, and I just walked up to a group of men. I said, hello. Um got engaged with them. I asked them, what are you guys doing? And, uh, you know, how long have you been here? And I just got their stories. And a lot of them had been there for two months. Uh, a lot of them said they've been waiting around just to find out what's next for them. Can they get housing? Um, can they get work papers? It, it, it really was a, a confusion about what the heck they were doing. Um, and, and, and then I met a, a couple of families, two, two particular families, one with two little kids, one with one little kid. Uh, you know, they they had been standing there. They'd been there for eight days. They didn't have a, a tent outside. They were unhappy that all the a lot of men, a lot of Venezuelan men had tents, but these these families didn't have tents. Now they all sleep inside. So at seven a.m. in the morning, they get kicked out of the police station and they go back in at nine p.m. to sleep, and they all just sleep on the floors across the whole police station. Um, oh, I didn't know they had a curfew. So what time do they get they get kicked out at seven a.m. and they can't get back until? I think, I think it's at seven a.m. Yeah, because <laughs> so. So the you know it, yeah there it's it's chaos right um, and you know these families are just sitting there on the sidewalks all day saying what do we do and of course they can go to the public library they can do different things but they're all kind of waiting around uh, they wait around for people to deliver food people come up with hot dogs and hamburgers and you know there's there's a lot of uh, volunteer work that goes on but but what became very clear is that the city has no plan and when I talked to some of them especially the Venezuelans they said look. We wouldn't come here if, if we knew we couldn't get in, but we know we can get in. So, um, so we're coming. That was the big message. Uh, they're coming. A lot of them were upset with uh, what happens in Venezuela. As I mentioned, the, you know, the lights don't come on a lot in, in Venezuela. The water doesn't come to your apartment. Uh, you can't make any any real money. It makes twenty dollars a month, is what I was told. And so, a lot of them, you know, had fled. But then I heard the other side of the story, and uh, there's a woman that works there. And uh, she works at the police station. She's not a police lady, but she is responsible for kind of maintaining order. And she's a little diminutive Mexican woman. And she said that she has to keep those people in, in order because if not, they'll just take over everything. And she says, here's what she sees. She sees a lot, of, a lot of the men are dangerous. A lot of the men are up to no good, a lot of drinking, that kind of stuff. And so they're really hard to manage because once they come into the into the – sleep inside it's it's you know it's, it's it's tough to manage a lot of them will just stay outside because they've been drinking too much so well, idle hands being the devil's workshop and all yeah right well we have 2509 in these cpd police districts and yesterday four people were taken by ambulance out of the first police district one was on a stretcher cruise said that there's multiple sick people at these police stations yeah i, I don't know how they're going to manage especially with the weather changing so the, the, the whole story, it's chaos, there's no plan, and, and you know, it, it invites a lot of dangerous people, it invites a lot of you know, people who are hungry for opportunity, and it's a mixed bag, but uh, it's unfair what we've done because we, we're opening the border, leaving it open, people come here with some kind of promise in their mind, and instead we leave them out in the, you know, out in the sidewalks, no work, and, uh, 
and chaos. Well, it's interesting because uh, I saw uh, at your site as well that um, the uh, Ven- former Venezuelan consul general said, you know, um, we're the Venezuelans are the majority of the migrants, at least in Chicago. And, um, you know, they're lying about uh, their need for asylum. Um, now, he, he may be flacking for the Maduro regime uh, in Caracas, but that's not really the point. The point is that, yeah, I, I understand um, looking for economic opportunity, and I don't fault anybody for doing that. But we can't just open our borders to every person in the world who is um, uh, unfortunately the, the victim of autocratic regimes that leave much of the population destitute. Uh, economic opportunity is not a legitimate reason to make an asylum claim, at least not a successful one. But they, so they know that. And so they don't claim economic opportunity, even if that's all they're really looking for. They're not otherwise failing. Uh, 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 they're not otherwise fleeing uh, government repression, like they're going to be imprisoned or tortured or something like that. They're just fleeing economic deprivation. And, and again, that's an important distinction to make in this conversation. Well, it's a huge distinction because, you know, if we were to make that the, the the reason for letting people in, we'd have, uh, you know, a few billion people coming into into uh, America. So you're absolutely right. Um, you know, these people are smart. <clears throat> They're very smart. Uh, you know, they, they are they are many of them are entrepreneurs. They, 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 they look for opportunity. They're risk takers because, uh, you know, if you've spent any time in the Venezuela or in Ecuador <clears throat> or any of the Latin American countries, you know, there's there's a real lack of opportunity at the, at the, you know, at the, at the American scale. And so. They will travel. They will do anything to go find opportunity and be able to, to earn a living. So um, I can't fault them for that. The, the real fault is, is you know, Biden at the border. Politicians. The real fault is, is yeah. yeah, it's Johnson and, and Pritzker for not calling for a border shutdown. Uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who are being inviting. And then, you know, we haven't even talked about the money. But, uh, you know, all this uh, news is starting to come out, and the Tribune's done a good job reporting this. I don't usually um, – you know, compliment the Tribune, but but they're 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 getting the numbers on all this money that's being spent on contractors, um, you know, who are making you know millions of dollars, and we have no idea if it's you know being used well or not. But it's certainly wasted money. Well, like this Garda World thing. I mean, I see more and more. It looks like Brinks trucks, but they say Garda World on it, and they're driving around our neighborhoods. It's very strange because they got the they got the contract to build the tents. So are they, besides that location at 38th in California, are there any tent sites that you know that they're starting up? I don't know, but it, it looks like you know, this, this Brighton is getting pretty serious and uh, people aren't happy. And, you know, if you start talking about putting 1,500 people in one site, um, man, yeah, we're, I, I was just telling the story of maybe 100 or plus, I don't know, 150 people in one police station. Imagine putting 1,500 in one site, what that's going to do, and you can understand why why um, residents, especially those that are in, in, in tougher areas that, that don't do well to begin with, you know, here they are being, you know, one taken over and two being prioritized over. So it's ugly. Uh, I wanted to uh, get uh, uh, an update on this event that's upcoming, sponsored by Nutrient Neighbors, since you are one. Uh, Unsettled Science, Gender Dysphoria in Adolescents and Young Adults. It features uh, Dr. Michael Bailey, who's a, well, Michael Bailey. We don't call non-medical doctors doctors. Michael Bailey. He's a professor at Northwestern, uh, unless he is a doctor. I don't know. Anyway, and uh, Dr. Lisa Littman, who is an MD, so I do get to call her doctor. So Michael Bailey from Northwestern, Lisa Littman, who's an MD, 
to tackle the topic, gender dysphoria in adolescents and young adults. That's Monday, November 13th, or just uh, two days after our Freedom Summit next month, uh, at the Writers Theater in Glencoe. Is it still at the Writers Theater in Glencoe? It is no longer at the Writers Theater in Glencoe. Uh, what happened? You know, these two, well, these two doctors, these two professors, uh, they're, they're used to being canceled because they're, they're talking about something that's, a, that's pretty uh, controversial, but it needs lots of discussion. And, you know, they're talking about gender dysphoria. And so, uh, you know, Nutrient Neighbors, we're, we're a, a parent group. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time focusing on education because, you know, Nutrier, hey, Nutria should be one of the most excellent schools in the country. And, uh, you know, we found that in many ways it goes a bit awry on that. And you know, one of the big issues that should be discussed is this gender dysphoria. We've seen a massive, massive increase in, in adolescent girls suddenly um, suddenly claiming they have gender dysphoria. And so Bailey and Littman, uh, we invited them to come speak, uh, Nutria Neighbors, at the Glencoe Writers Theater, which is a great, uh, great venue. Uh, well, you know, they, they accepted it. They accepted our deposit. And then suddenly they said, well, you know, we don't want you anymore. Um, you know, they canceled us. Did they, they say canceled. that or did they say oh, we have a scheduling conflict after confirming the date? Well, yeah, correct. <laughs> now, to be more precise, what they said is, well, you know what? We we have an internal board meeting that we forgot to put in our calendar. Oh, oh yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, that happens. Board meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then even, and even more, they didn't say, well, well, we'll give you another date. They didn't say that. They said, we'll help you find somewhere else if you want help. Oh. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so, so. You know, say what you want. Uh, you know, they, 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 they listen. They're a private group. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, they're, they're showing their cards there, and uh, you know, we, we we asked them a couple times. Listen, will you give us another date? And you know, they haven't come back. So I think that's a pretty clear message. Now, the good news is is that we have a backup plan. We're going to meet at the Wilmette Library. Uh oh. And uh, no, no. Uh-oh. We'll see if that holds. And, uh, <laughs> But we'll meet at the Wilmette Library, and you know, listen, it, it's a discussion that has to be had. It's, it's, you know, and I think not you know, according to a lot of residents of the North Shore, Shore, it doesn't have to be had. Yeah, that that's true, but you know, um, it it should be because the the, the numbers are phenomenal, and uh, you know, Abigail Schreier's written that great book on irreversible damage, covering it, and I I think everybody should should read that and at least get into the uh, into the arguments of what's going on there. Okay, so that's uh, Unsettled Science, Gender Dysphoria in Adolescence at Young Adults, no longer at the Writers Theater in Glencoe, now, for for now, uh, at the uh, Wilmette Library. Um, I I just love when the, uh, you know, hyper-educated North Shore residents uh, want to squelch intellectual discussions. It's just so fitting. You know what you should have yeah. done? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not here to run your group for you, but you know what you should have done? What? You should have said, yeah, we're going to discuss gender dysphoria, but we're also going to do a poverty simulation. Maybe that yeah, could have gotten past the, yeah, past the goalkeeper there at Writers uh, Theater in Glencoe. Perfect. Yeah. Well, we're fascinating. We're fascinating. These, these, uh, these guys, these uh, professors aren't, you know, they're not crazy. They, they, they'll talk about the issue and, you know, both sides and ask the questions. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. Oh, Northwestern University, you know, I mean, that's just a haven for right-wing zealots, as everyone knows. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Ted Dabrowski, President of WirePoints. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Can I mention one thing? I want to make sure we cover one thing. Uh, This Investing Kids Act that you've talked a lot about. Oh, yeah. um, Veto session is upon us, right? That's right. And, uh, you know, there's the big fight over 97, 9,600 scholarships. The question is going to be whether the Investing Kids Act is kept alive or killed. 
and if it dies, 9,700 scholarships go by the wayside. And that's, that's really sad because it's a, you know, a lot of low-income kids that get that. But, but here's the bigger story and, and why, why this whole thing is, 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 is I don't want to say a joke, is you know, I was looking at the numbers. If you look at 70% of Illinois kids can't read at grade level across the entire public school system. You have 70% of all our kids, is 1.3 million kids can't read at grade level. And here we are fighting over 9,700 kids. You know, the whole battle is, is upside down. They've, they've, they've really, Pritzker has got us groveling and begging to him for, for 9,700 scholarships. When across the entire country, you got North Carolina, Indiana, uh, uh, Iowa, everybody's going to universal school choice where every kid has access. Every single kid, no matter what income, what age, what you know, disabilities or no disabilities, they have access to a voucher. And in Illinois... Pritzker's got his begging and groveling to him for 9,700 vouchers. That's what's screwed up. Well, and what's screwed up additionally with that is this thing, the tax credit scholarships uh, are going out with a whimper, not a bang, uh, because in large measure the opposition is so anemic. Uh, where, have we, where, where are the 9,500 parents who are about to lose a scholarship for their kids? Where are their representatives both in public office and outside of public office, other than at wire points around this program. They've been um, largely absent. They've been too busy, as you say, uh, begging behind closed doors. And that is provocative to uh, the teachers' union apparatchiks in charge of the state. There, there's no, I mean, the begging for people that are diametrically opposed to competition in K-12 through is not the play, and that seems to be a lesson that's going to be hard learned, I, I suppose. Ted Dabrowski, President of WirePoints, WirePoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Amy. And having Ted on talking about, well, Matt, we never, you know, Loyola beat Mount Carmel. They ended their 22-game winning streak, and there were no reports of any violence or anything, Dan. Isn't that good news? Well, I think most of the North Shore fled to Lake Geneva, thank God. <laughs> it is now safe to come back. They've got, The caravan has gone back to the south side. You can... Reoccupy your homes, North Shoreans. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's morning answer. Morning answer on AM five sixty. The answer. This is Chicago's morning answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM five sixty. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy revisiting the George Floyd case. We're compelled to because of the hundreds of pages of sworn testimony of Hennepin County state's attorneys and other county employees that took place this summer and have recently been made public. The uh, depositions were conducted in uh, relation to a lawsuit filed by Amy Sweezy, who was one of the Hennepin County District Attorney's top prosecutors. She filed a uh, sex discrimination uh, and retaliation claim against the former county attorney, Mike Freeman. Hennepin County has agreed to pay 190000 to settle the Department of Human Rights claim that she made. Freeman uh, left office in January. Uh, Amy Sweezy, the plaintiff, resigned from the uh, county attorney's office in April. Here's some of what she and others testified to in sworn depositions in the case. 
a senior assistant county attorney, Patrick Lofton, who worked on police use of force cases with Sweezy, said the relationship between Sweezy and Freeman soured after both he and her, Sweezy, withdrew from the officer's cases on June 3rd of 2020. Lofton explained the pressure they were under to file charges. The Chauvin stuff is the catalyst for this, Lofton said, according to his deposition. There was extreme premium pressure. Yes, uh, the city was burning down. Uh, Lofton explained that while he wanted the case charged and believed there was probable cause to charge Derek Chauvin with third-degree murder, the pressure from outside the office was, quote-unquote, insane, and he and others had reservations about charging the other three cops involved in the George Floyd stop. He wrote a letter to the county attorney, June 3rd of 2020, explaining his decision to withdraw from the case, Lofton saying, I wanted it in writing. I wanted to make sure it was documented that I wasn't going to let the situation, what was going on in the world, affect my judgment because I have to sleep at night no matter what. And so I wrote this letter and I wanted it to be memorialized. I can tell you that everyone I associate with to any degree, professionally or personally, agreed with our decision, the decision to withdraw from the case because of concerns about charging the other three officers. Didn't think that a case could be made out legitimately. Lofton said of the county state's attorney, Freeman, uh, his reaction, not happy. He felt like our decision in Chauvin ruined him and ruined the office. He didn't say those exact words to me. I know he was incredibly angry with me. Uh, another Assistant United States Attorney Rachel Cracker, who worked in the county's attorney's office, she was deposed too. That was my understanding. This was not about Chauvin. It was about the others. My understanding was they withdrew because they would not file charges, and that was their directive. Sweezy, the plaintiff in the case, again, in the county state's attorney's office, working on police use of force cases with Lofton. He, Freeman, was screaming at us. He asked us whether or not we had worked out deals in state court with the other three officers. Of course, we had not. He screamed, what the blank have they been doing all day to a former chief deputy? Uh, she went on to say that... Um, I don't give a blank about your optics. The two of you need to get back to work. You're effing this up. Sweezy also discussed a revealing conversation she had at the day after Floyd's death when she asked Hennepin County Medical Examiner, Dr. Andrew Baker, about the autopsy. Quoting Sweezy, I called Dr. Baker early that morning to tell him about the case and to ask him if he would perform the autopsy on Mr. Floyd. He called me later in that day on Tuesday, and he told me that there were no medical findings that showed any injury to the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. Sweezy saying, he, the coroner, said to me, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everybody has already decided on? Ooh. This is the kind of case that ends careers. More attorneys working within Hennepin County, including Senior Assistant County Attorney Judith Cole, expressed surprise at how the case was handled. Cole saying the AG taking over the Chauvin cases was difficult, particularly when we had a governor who kind of threw us under the bus. So it made us discouraged and people were no longer proud to say they worked there. Um, Lofton said part of the uh, the. the environment in the office was 
I'm quoting him. I do believe things I've witnessed here show that Freeman was trying to get back at her because of Floyd. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. Now, to be um, complete on this, the uh, county medical examiner said in court something different. He said that um, he there were indications of asphyxiation. Right. So he had one private conversation with the Hennepin County State's Attorney who asked him to do the autopsy. And obviously he was, um, if, if you take her at her word, if that's an accurate memorialization of the conversation, he was worried about the larger public opinion and the associated public pressure. Yeah, and Sweezy said, according to the transcript, there were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. That's what the county... That's a big contrast. That's what the D, the uh, coroner said to her privately. Yeah, privately, yep. Uh-huh. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And if that's true, maybe they should get rid of the medical examiner? Well, um, yeah, but the larger question about, um, well, just the the whole environment there and, uh, you know, sort of lady justice being blind. And as Lofton said, the other county attorney, you know, I'm not going to suspend my personal judgment based on public pressure. Well, uh, he may have been in the minority on there, but uh, he did. He also said, I mean, again, to be fair here, he said, I did believe there was a case to be made for third degree homicide against Chauvin. And so even if you didn't, even if uh, Floyd didn't die of asphyxiation or strangulation, the uh, the sitting on him uh, for as long as Chauvin did uh, after he had gone unconscious, uh, the lethargy and rendering aid, so, so th- that environment induced a cardiac event or whatever was the potential other cause of death. If, you know, again, this is all hypothetical but i mean those are pretty damning statements coming from people within the hennepin county state's attorney's office and certainly uh this should require at minimum a follow-up with the hennepin county coroner to explain himself is did you say that to amy sweezy and if you did then what happened and if you didn't then uh well explain yourself Particularly, so so the Chauvin thing is separate and distinct from the other three. The other big point here is that um, a number of county state's attorneys in the Hennepin County uh, County Attorney's Office withdrew from the case because they didn't believe there was a case against the other three officers. And you know, this is uh, against you know looking looking retrospectively. Three billion dollars in damages and hundreds of people killed on the streets of America as people laid siege to America's cities over this. This is not to defend Chauvin. It's not to say what he did was right. It's to say we either have equal justice under the law based on evidence or we don't. And if you believe these state's attorneys, these you know former assistant county attorneys, and the depositions they provided in this case, 
then it seems like at best we have a mix in Hennepin County in the Floyd case. That's not an inconsequential deal. Got a text message. Uh, Dan and Amy, I thought the left doesn't like it when innocent people go to jail. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. And this whole narrative about anti-blackness policing, you know, it persists. And it's just, it's sort of the left's uh, knee-jerk calling card on any police-involved killing. We have a recent one. This in Camden County, Georgia. The uh, case of Leonard Cure. And the family's attorney is Ben Crump. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, body cam footage of the police shooting of Leonard Cure during a traffic stop has now been released. And it's if you if you watch it, and you should, what you have is, and you'll hear it, you'll get a sense of it from the audio, but you really should see the video. What you'll hear is a um, uh, traffic stop for speeding. He was going 100 miles per hour. And uh, the officer said, basically, it's reckless driving. I'm going to take you into custody. And Leonard Kier says, no, you're not. And he is aggressive. He is aggressive in the direction of the police officer. The police officer, at some point, attempts to tase him. It doesn't work. Then he physically accosts the officer. They have a struggle in the back of, you know, in, in the front of his police car towards the back of Mr. Cure's car, and they're on the ground struggling, and you don't see it because it's below the level of the dashboard cam, but uh, a shot is fired, and it, it hits Cure because you, you can see the spot when, it, when the officer stands up and it pans back. It hits him uh, sort of under, like in the ribcage area, and he died from that shooting. The Southern Poverty Law Center and the assembled horribles of the left are calling this another example of anti-blackness policing. Um, it is nothing of the sort. Get out! Get out! Get out! Put your hands back here. I ain't doing Put your damn hands back here. Who are you? Staff Sergeant Alder Sheriff's Office. My name is Wayne. I don't care. Step to the rear of this vehicle. In the name of who? In the name of the law of the state of Georgia. Step back here. Now you're getting tased. Watch me now. Put your hands on the back of that truck. Do you see that? Put your hands on the back of that truck. The back of the truck. Both hands. Turn around. 34, can you send me another unit? One non compliant. Your name is Officer Who? Staff Sergeant Aldridge with the Camden County Sheriff's Office. Who County? Camden County. Put your hand behind your back. Do I have a do I have a warrant? Wait, wait. No, 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 no. Excuse me. Excuse me. Either put your hands behind your back or you're getting tased. I'm telling you that right now. Why am I getting tased? Because you are under arrest for speeding and reckless driving. I'm not driving. Nobody was hurt. How was I speeding? You passed me doing 100 miles an hour. Okay, so that's a speeding ticket, right? Sir, tickets in the state of Georgia are criminal offenses. I don't have a ticket in Georgia. You do now? Why? You passed me doing 100 miles an hour. And what? Am I going to jail? Hands behind your back. Yes, you are going to jail. 
hands behind your back. Put your hands behind your back. Taser doesn't work because you stop him. Couldn't even hear the the shot fired. You just see the evidence that a shot was fired. Obviously, he discloses that after having called for backup previous before it even escalated at the hands of uh, the Mr. Cure, who he had pulled over. You heard him saying, "Yeah, bitch, yeah, bitch." When it looked like Cure was getting the better of him in their physical confrontation. Yeah. And then the officer was able to get on top of him. It's hard to see if the guy went for his weapon or not. But regardless, you're obviously in a lethal situation, and. Um, this is what the left is going to call anti-blackness policing. Mm-hmm. 312-642-5600, turnkey.proanswer line, or text us at 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. The stories they tell versus the evidence, what the evidence shows. Manny, Southside, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. You know, in the case of Derek Chauvin and uh, Floyd, um, there's a video that I saw where he's begging not to be put in the car because he's claustrophobic. I happen to suffer from claustrophobia, and uh, it's not pretty. I think he had a heart attack with the drugs that he had in his system, and that video is never shown. Thanks for the well, you have to man. watch the whole video, and I told my kids, too, I'm like, can you just watch the entire video, please? You cannot resist arrest. In all of these cases, they have one thing in common, resisting arrest. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's been... uh... A little heavy this morning, so something lighter. Uh, Travis Bajant is Tyson Bajant's dad. Hey, the Bears won. Hey, no, that was a huge victory. Wasn't it the longest uh, losing streak for any team for home games, I do believe? And he's the one to break the seal. Not Justin Fields, but Tragent. Or what is his last name, Bajant? Bajant, yeah. Tyson Bajant is his name. Travis Bajant is his his dad's name. And Travis uh, apparently is uh, quite the arm wrestling, uh, arm wrestling heavyweight. He's a 28-time arm wrestling champion, world champion. And he uh, gave uh, he was interviewed by a reporter for the NFL Network, and he gave him a little demonstration uh, of his arm wrestling prowess. Listen to this, Travis Bajan, who, by the way, looks like he could play for the Bears, and maybe yeah. it wouldn't be a bad idea if you could get Travis, uh, Travis, I should say, on uh, the offensive line to protect uh, to protect Tyson 
Here it is. So the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, seven Super Bowl rings. That pales in comparison to your 28 world championships in arm wrestling. I met you the other night, and we began talking, and you suggested maybe we should arm wrestle just to see if I could take down a 28-time world champion. What do you think? No doubt. And I honestly expected you guys to do this on Monday. I can't believe what took you guys so long. <laughs> and I've had this little set, I love this set up for you since Monday. And if you can come over here, I can give you a little demonstration. Right, let's, let's find oh. out here. I, I know very oh little about arm wrestling. Yeah. I know Brian's going to hold the mic don't here. Don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, would, would this the, be the referee spot right here? Can Ed just be the referee? Yeah, get in there, Ed. First of all, have you ever done this before? No. no. Perfect. I'll take over from here. I can actually keep this if you don't mind. Perfect. Holding the microphone while he's on wrestling. Yeah. I'll leave my so hand confident. here to the side. It's real easy. If your hand hits that pad, you are the great, you are the baddest dude in the history of the NFL Network. What usually happens is I win. What's best for you is don't fight it. Everybody's good at something, and this is what I do. Ready and go. Nice. Relax. Man. I thought for sure you'd be a lot stronger. I'll take it from here. Listen, the rest of these people, they've been calling me Travis. You can call me Daddy. Young man. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot to the NFL Network. He's actually a lot stronger than I thought. He could definitely beat you. There it is, guys. And that's going to hurt tomorrow. But I swear by Saturday, I'll be ready. I know Travis will be ready, too, right? And for some of you guys in the back, if you want to believe it, you want to feel it, get on up here. It's the real deal. Thanks a lot, guys. Let's go, Tyson. That's funny. He's just exuding confidence and character. And at one point in time, the NFL reporter grabbed both of his hands to try and pull his arm down. And, you know, Travis had, had his way with him. Yeah, yeah, Travis, Travis Bajant, um, you know, let's um, let's think about it. Let's think about a father and son duo. You haven't seen that in the NFL, not at the same time. He does look know. young, yeah. Yeah, hmm. it made me feel old. He's, I know, Travis Bajant's father. I mean, like, really? That's his dad? Holy cow. I felt old when Cole Komet played because Frank Komet and I went to high school together. I'm like, I'm officially old. <sighs> Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. You you. know what? (laughs) That that official word came down some time ago. Uh, (laughs) You know, you got an underdog story. The Bears won a game. You got an underdog story. All is right with Chicago again. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Time now for another reason why Dan Puff is single. Bring it in, ladies. Uh, you know, part of this is something I just should have done years and years ago. You know, establish your singlehood and then guard it jealously. It was inspired by the story of Calixte Nazamwida. He's in Rwanda. He has uh, 71 years old. He spent the last 55 years in self-imposed isolation, isolation, barricading himself in his house to avoid any contact with females. <laughs> Quite the chastity belt, huh? <laughs> this guy's a genius. Um, by the way, he looks great. Oh, he does? Well, probably because yep. he had no sun exposure to damage his skin or anything, or he didn't have women harping on him to do things. Yeah. Well, he's, no, he, he gets some sunlight. He's, he's outside. Oh, I mean, okay. He's in great shape. I, there's a glint in his eye. Um, happy-go-lucky is the way I would describe him. Well, I got to look up his picture. What's his name again? Uh, Common spelling? Yeah, right, yeah. like you're like going to be gonna... able to spell it. Just don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> That's so amazing. 
to convey his message about being isolated from female contact, he constructed a towering 15-foot fence, effectively sealing himself within his house footprint uh, so that no woman could ever enter. I lock myself inside here and have a fence around my house because I want to ensure that women will not come closer to me. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. According to one of his female neighbors, he's rarely been seen outside his property since childhood. Yeah, right. He had a run-in with her, and that scared him straight. I wish I would have been so lucky as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he prefers to keep his distance when they attempt to assist him and doesn't engage in conversations. Although it's interesting because I guess some women, some of the women in the village or the vicinity in which he lives, do leave food and stuff for him outside. Uh, it's their version of Uber Eats, I suppose, which he does he does uh, scoop up when the coast is clear. Uh, there, there's some suggestion that he suffers from gynophobia. What's oh fear of women? Okay. Yeah, irrational, irrational fear of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, rational and intense fear of women often lead to anxiety even when thinking about them. These symptoms may cause panic attacks, chest tightness, excessive sweating, a rapid heartbeat. Yeah, that sounds like every date I've been on. Uh, in a related story, this is why uh, our Rwandan friend is so insightful. He can avoid dates like this date a gentleman had in Atlanta. Um, first date at Fontaine's Oyster House. Um, man asked her out for this woman out for drinks. She ended up ordering and eating four dozen oysters. Oh, oh no. Aquana Bennett said that when the fourth platter of a dozen oysters came, he was looking at me crazy. Gee, I wonder why he would do that. After the oysters and drinks, she also ordered crab cakes and potatoes. Ooh. At some point, according to uh, Miss Bennett, uh, the gentleman got up to go to the bathroom and scurried out the window, went home, built a 15-foot fence around his house (laughs) so he'll never have contact with women again. Now, I don't agree with, you know, skipping out on the tab like he did. No, dash and dime, but the tab ended up being 185 bucks. Yeah. That's a lot for a first date? Oh, my gosh. He did uh, uh, when she contacted him, you know, texting him. She did. He did offer to pay for the price of the drinks, which is what he invited her for. You know, maybe an appetizer, okay, but forty-eight oysters. Got them. Somebody put somebody put on the internet quote: "If you eat forty-eight oysters oysters in a day, you're a walrus." Something. Yeah. Not to mention, aren't oysters a, a allegedly an aff- yeah, yeah. So I mean, Uh-oh. he was probably afraid of She's coming at you hot. You know, again. Um, 15-foot fences, you know, the the old saying, happy wife, happy life. Uh 15-foot fences around your home, happy life. Well, even the manager told Rolling Stone magazine that eating 48 oysters is, quote, pretty impressive. It is. But not completely unheard of. Yeah, yeah. All right, well. Well, do I dare ask what's the worst date you've ever been on? No, I'm still, I'm still doing, I'm still, I'm, no, I'm just, I've, I've got an architect I've retained after I read Uh the story. We're working on that 15 foot fence around my place. So I'll let you know how that goes. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. 
Hear about the big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.